Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. In the last 24 hours, I have had opposite extremes of, of the area of customer service. And I want to vent because if you go through this, you know, you probably like to vent too, but I've got the radio show. But, but because I'm a, gla- a glass is half full guy, let me give you the example of absolutely knockout great customer service, and it's not even a business. And I've just been so impressed. Um, we, we all know everybody's been trying to get vaccinated. And uh, especially a month ago, um, it was very difficult. And we've talked about this before. There was a shortage of vaccines, and we were talking about how people would be trying to get up on uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning to get on lists and things like that. And we, we happened to get lucky because the church that my wife and I go to, and I, I, I have not been eligible for the vaccine, but she was, the church that we go to sends out this email saying, hey, there's another church in the area that is, has a deal with one of the pharmacies and that they, they're doing these vaccinations on Wednesday. Wednesday, and they've got some vacancies the next day. And if there, here's the contact number, if you contact the, these people, they, they can get you in. Now, the church, it's volunteers. It's these ladies who are volunteering their time to do this. So immediately I, I say to my wife, hey, I, I, can, I think we can get a chance to get you in. I call the lady. She calls me back. And she says, yeah, we, we can get her in. And my wife says, well, how about we have a, we have a variety of other friends who had been in the same situation. They were qualified, but they, they couldn't get on the list. And so over the course of the next like two hours, I, I keep calling the, the folks at this church back. And these are volunteers. And, and I'm calling back, and it's in the evening, and I'm saying, well, how about our friend? Can you get our friend Colleen in? And how about my buddy Joe? Can you get him in? And, and, and pretty soon, I, I think we had... We we had filled thanks to their efforts. You know, we had filled like seven or eight spots, and these were these were friends or acquaintances of ours who who really wanted to get the vaccines, but had been frustrated. And the, the volunteers working at the church had just bent over backwards to get everybody vaccinated. And they're volunteers. There, there's no economic incentive in it. They're calling me back at eight o'clock at night and saying, oh, or sending me emails. I was just incredibly impressed by this. So. I have not been eligible, and I'm I'm not going to skip in line. But starting next week, I, I'm eligible. So I was reaching out to a couple places. My health care provider still won't let me sign up because they don't open up the thing till till Monday. But I, I reached out to this church, and I said before, I said, "Hey, look, you know, can you put me on a wait list or something if you start to do this again?" So they, they said, "Great." So yesterday. Around 4.30, I get an email from the people at this church saying, hey, good news, we're doing this again, um, we, we can we can take you on Wednesday, um, 11.40. And I said, well, look, I really want to get vaccinated, but uh, but 11.40 doesn't work. I have this kind of radio show thing at 12, and I, I just, I, I really, I, I can't do it. And, you know, if something opens up earlier, I, I you know, but maybe. And so they, they immediately, they get back to me and they say, well, what time can you do it? And I said, well... You know, probably the latest is 1030 or so. Okay, and the lady, now this is now like 8 or 30 at night. She's sending me notes saying, I'll I'll get you in. We'll work on this tomorrow. We will get this rescheduled. We'll work around yours. 
get an email first thing this morning saying we move stuff around, so we, we've got you in for 10 o'clock next Wednesday the 24th. Does that work? Can you make it work? I said, absolutely. I said, we'll get you in right away. The only deal is you have to wait about 15 minutes after we vaccinated you to make sure you don't you know, pass out or something like that. But I said, no, that, that's great. Get in at 10 o'clock. Be done by whatever. Get into work. You might want to listen to the show next Wednesday, mark it, because you know, who, who knows? I'll, I'll, I'll have my vaccination. If, if I have a reaction, you'll hear it on the air. But I said, this was great. But what was so wonderful is you had these are volunteers they they went out of their way to make it work As a matter of fact i just got a, a email from one of the ladies saying hey we're glad to do this i mean actually what's happened is up until now most of the people that have been getting their vaccinations have been retirees and it doesn't really matter <laughs> but you know we, we appreciate that there's people who still work who who qualifies but it's it's great i i just i cannot tell you how how much i appreciate the customer service to the point that I'm uh, at some point in time, I'm making a donation to the church just because they, they've been so good. And these are people that are are, again, they're volunteers. They're not getting paid. They're just going out of their way because they believe it is in the interest of the community for everybody to get vaccinated. And I can't tell you this, this how great that is. So that is my glass is half full approach. Here is my glass is half empty approach. I have been going to the same eye doctor, the same ophthalmologist for probably 30 some years. And it used to be a couple guys that were in private practice, and a couple of years ago, they sold their practice to one of the, the large eye care clinics in, in the area, and the guys have started retiring. My doctor, when I last saw him maybe a year, year and a half ago, he told me he was going to retire at some time, but he didn't have a, a specific thing. So I'm kind of going through my checklist yesterday about stuff I need to do, and it's like, hey, I, I should really, it's time for me to get in and have my eyes examined again. No problem, but whatever. So I call the place. And I, I, I talked to the lady behind the, the desk, and I said, well, I'm a patient of Dr. So-and-so's, and I, I need to set up an exam. And she says, well, Dr. So-and-so is retiring at the end of May. I said, great, great. I, I, you know, get, get me in we'll, we'll, I, one more time. She says, no. She says, he, he's all booked up between now and May. There's, there's no other appointments available. And then there's this pause and she's not saying anything, and, and I'm not saying anything, because I guess I'm, I'm waiting for her to go on. And it, it lasts like five or ten seconds. She's now told me my doctor's retiring. There's no appointments available. And after several seconds, I say, okay, well, where do we go? <laughs> where, where do I go from, from here? And then she says, well, we're going to uh, be getting another ophthalmologist in, in a few months, and, you know, he or she, we don't know who that is right now, but he, but he or she, you know, might, might be taking appointments. So I said, so you're telling me that my guy is retiring, there's no appointments, and you have somebody coming in that we don't know who it is a few months from now, and if I want an appointment, I, I call back to get it. And she says, yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm sure you could have been less helpful, but but how do you stay in business? I, I mean, seriously, because how many patients of this doctor are, are going through the same thing I am, and th- there, there's no mechanism to get them to somebody else or make these appointments or whatever? I'm thinking, how does this Claire place stay in business if this is the reaction when you have people who've been, you know, with some of the doctors for 30-some years who are calling up, and you say, oh, just kind of call back, you know, whenever, and to which, I, I mean, my response was, okay, that's fine and i i suspect i'm going to have no trouble finding an eye doctor somewhere closer to where i live now but it's just it's the the tale of of customer service versus no customer service and i'm thinking okay i've got this church that they're going out of their way to try to with no financial incentive at all 
they're going out of their way to try to, again, accommodate people because it's a public service. And here you have this private business that is, is sort of like, well, we, we, we don't care. Well, you know, yeah, he, he's retiring. We don't know what you're going to do. Call us back in a few months, and maybe we'll try to get you an appointment. Well, okay, that, that, that's, that's great. Well, maybe I'm going to go find somewhere else. It's just at some point in time, I just, I honest to goodness, wonder how some places stay in business. When we come back, what's going on in Madison, and what's going on with the reporting of COVID deaths? I'll explain. Stick around. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. What is going on in Madison, and who knew what, and when did they know it? Now, hear me out on this. The the story is that Wisconsin has now reclassified 1,000 past COVID-19 deaths and now is reporting that 45% of all deaths were in long-term care facilities. Now, this is interesting because early on, the the state was reporting that um, you you had about 20x percent of the deaths that were occurring in nursing homes. Um, Nursing homes. They counted about 2,000 deaths as related to long-term care. Well, it turns out that that was inaccurate or at least misleading because it now turns out that about an extra thousand deaths occurred in assisted living facilities not technically nursing homes that are regulated by federal authorities but also in nursing homes and or the assisted living facilities now why is this significant because when we imposed all the draconian shutdowns that we did and, and the justification for you know closing down the state, the justification was, well, we, we've got to protect people and we've got this rampant spread uh, of COVID and COVID is killing people. Now, in a number of states, Florida being the classic example, what they did early on is they recognized that the effort in fighting COVID especially if you're trying to deal with the biggest thing, which is to stop people from dying, what you need to do is you need to concentrate your resources on on the people that are most vulnerable, the people in the nursing homes, the people in the assisted living facilities. And that's what they did in Florida. They spent a lot of the resources saying, okay, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to make sure that we get the PPE in those situations. We're trying to impose restrictions on this to protect the people in these most vulnerable areas. And what they did is they They said, okay, we're going to concentrate on where the real problem is, and we're not going to worry about closing down other sorts of things that don't really relate to the likelihood that people are going to die. And see, we've known early on with COVID that the chances of a very, very bad outcome increase dramatically with age with underlying health situations and people who are living in close quarters, whether it's the nursing homes or whether it's the assisted living facilities. And so then you couple a situation where you've got 70, somebody who's 75 or 80 years old who's got a, a couple of ongoing health issues who's living in an assisted living facility. They are the most vulnerable, and that's where the resources need to be directed. But apparently for the better part of a year, the state of Wisconsin has been under-reporting the deaths that occurred in the assisted living facilities. 
now it is coming out that about 45% of the people who died as a result of COVID-19, at least 45%, maybe more, are either attributable to people who were in nursing homes or in the assisted living facilities. Now, why is, is this relevant? You say, well, Jeff, they're all, that you know, people have died. What difference does it make? Well, no, it makes a difference because... The justification, again, for a lot of the shutdown, we're going to unemploy all these people, we're going to not let people, you know, go out, we're going to close down all these businesses, was that, well, we have to protect people from getting COVID and dying. When it now is starting to become apparent that a large percentage, 45% and probably more, probably more of the people who died were those people that we knew in the beginning were the folks who were the most vulnerable. So the question becomes, what did the state know and when did the state know it? And what was the justification? If the justification for shutting down the entire state was, well, we've got to stop people from dying from this. Well, all right. Maybe if it turns out that the numbers show that most of the people that were dying were people that were in the nursing homes or the assisted living facilities, wouldn't it have made more sense to concentrate our resources in trying to protect those people as opposed to saying that an otherwise healthy 24-year-old shouldn't be able to go out and go to work? And that's that's what the question becomes. It's not so much, you know, that it's not that there's like new deaths, but we're now finding out where those deaths were. And we're finding out that those deaths were in the places that, again, were obvious from the beginning where they were going to occur. The other issue is uh, most of the states that were reporting this, they were reporting their information. They were saying, okay, we're, we're going to release where people died, long whether it's the long-term care facilities or whether it's the nursing homes. State of Wisconsin kept that data under wraps. And I think it's a fair question to say, why did that data come under wraps? Was it because if that information had been made public and we recognized again that the big crisis, the the principal health crisis, the people that have the worst reactions, they're the ones that are in the assisted living facilities and the nursing homes, which makes sense to me. If it was, okay, we're not going to give you the whole picture and show how bad it is there because we want to use that as a justification for closing down everything else. See, here's my beef. We've been told that we're going to follow the science. And, and I think that's a very, very fair, reasonable position. But you can't follow the science if the data isn't made public and the data isn't effectively analyzed. And I think you can make a very strong argument, like I say, that if if it is apparent that the vast majority of the really bad outcomes are occurring in uh, nursing homes and or senior living facilities, well, why wasn't that where the vast majority of the effort was placed in dealing with and trying to protect those people who were most vulnerable as opposed to, again, let's crack down and let's spend resources trying to close down the state and protect people. And look, nobody wants to get COVID. I understand that. But as we've been saying from the beginning, lots of people who get COVID, um, most people get it. They're, they're sick for a little while. They recover. They're fine. They move on. Nobody wants to get COVID. But our goal has always been to protect those people who are most vulnerable. And you can't do that unless we're honest about, you know, where the deaths are coming from. I think Tony Evers and the Department of uh, Health and Human Services has a lot of questions to answer. And there's a number of legislators, starting with Alberta Darling, state senator, who's saying, I, I want an audit of this. I, I want to know who knew what and when. And if we didn't know 
for example, that a large number of people were dying in these assisted living facilities in addition to the nursing homes. Why didn't we know that? Fair questions. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Hey, Brewers fans, WTMJ's Greg Matzik has received a non-roster invite to spring training. He won't be playing for the team, of course, but join him for the ride. He gets an all-access look inside Brewers spring training. Join us all next week during all your favorite WTMJ shows. It's Greg Matzik's spring training trip, March 22nd through March 26th, sponsored by Trex, the number one name in outdoor living. Hey, a quick update on a story that we've talked about a couple times uh, before. The, the state of Wisconsin has essentially allowed people to go without paying their utility bills for the better part of a year and a half without having fear that the utility was going to be able to disconnect. I, I think, as everybody knows, in Wisconsin, under the law, you have a moratorium that says from, like, November 1st to April 15th, you can't shut off people who don't pay because of non for nonpayment. You, you can't do it. And so typically, April 15th is the date that utility companies get to come in and say, okay, here's the deal. If you haven't paid since last November, you owe us this money. Boom, you know, give us the money or we're going to disconnect, which is really the only leverage a utility has to get people to pay. Well, so in November of 2019, the moratorium kicks in. April 15th of 2020 rolls around. The moratorium expires, but of course we're in the middle of COVID then. So the government decides we're going to extend the moratorium through the summer, summer of 2020. September, August of September of 2020 roll around. We're still in the pandemic. So the government says to the utility companies, no, you're not going to be able to shut off people uh, until November. So, okay, they extend the moratorium, then November kicks in, and that, again, is where the statutory moratorium is. So you have some people who theoretically have not paid a dime on their utility bills since November of 2019. And finally, 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 what happened is you had the a public service commission met yesterday and decided that, that that enough is enough and that when April 15th rolls around, utilities will once again be entitled to shut people off if they don't pay um, or they don't make arrangements to pay. There's, they estimate it's about 93,000 residential customers who ha- have not paid. Now, it's not that they all haven't paid for 17 months, but that there's Again, over 93,000 customers who are in arrears. Now, this is a big deal because all the rest of us who are paying our utility bills on time, we're, we're putting, we're, you know, footing the bill for the people who aren't. And we've got stimulus payments that are coming out. I think it is perfectly reasonable to now to say to folks who haven't paid for whether it's three months or six months or a year and a half, okay, now's the time to either pay up or risk having your utilities shut off, or at least at the very least, get on a payment plan, which is what the utilities want. So yesterday, the Public Service Commission did vote that once and for all, they're ending the moratorium. So for people who have not paid and owe money, if you want to continue getting your gas service, getting your electric service, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to make arrangements to start catching up on the bill. I say good. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
One of our texters says, well, Jeff, I, I don't understand. If I pay my utility bill, why do I care if other people don't pay theirs? I, I, I don't get it. What, what do you mean other people not paying their costs, their, their utility bills? How does that impact me? And the, the answer, I think it's, it should be pretty obvious. The answer is that the utility companies... All right, take the money. If, if they have a huge amount of, of un, millions of dollars in uncollected fees, for example, the things that they are owned, ultimately some, if not most of that, is going to get passed on to consumers in the forms of sur- other consumers in the forms of surcharges or higher rates or things like that. So if, if you don't think that 90,000 households not paying their utility bills has an impact on what you're ultimately going to pay. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It, that's just not the case. It's sort of like, think about it like automobile insurance. Automobile insurance is, even if you're a good driver, if you live in a particular area, your rates are going to be determined by all the drivers in your particular area. Now, you might get a deal on it, but if you live in an area where there's accidents or car collisions and insurance claims that are filed you know, every three days, your rate is going to be higher than if you live in an area where there, there's no claims that are filed. That's just kind of the, the reality. That's how it's all based into fact. In any event, I, I think it's great that they're starting to collect. All right. Well, we are starting to see light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the pandemic. More and more people are getting vaccinated. There's more and more vaccines that are available. I I think what you see is the the number of hospitalizations are, are dropping dramatically. That overflow facility they had at State Fair, they've now... If not dismantled, that they, they've closed it down. They didn't have any patients there since uh, Christmas Eve, I believe. The hospitals are not overwhelmed, and it's not to say that COVID has gone away. That that's not the case, of course. But as far as the goal of flattening the curve, which is what we were told a year ago that this was all about, trying to make sure the hospital systems aren't overwhelmed, we're, we're, we're past that point right now. That that's not the case. Now it's not to say that there can't be another surge or anything like that. And Europe is having a, a surge, but it becomes less and less likely as more and more people, particularly the people who are most vulnerable, the folks that have the pre-existing conditions or the folks that are older, as they get vaccinated, there's less and less chance that they're going to get COVID and they're going to be in the hospital. Doesn't mean that people might not get COVID, but Again, if the purpose is flattening the curve, we're, we're, we're getting there and we're starting to see things reopen. You know, there's going to be 15,000 people at opening day at American Family Field, not Miller Park. They're still not going to allow tailgating, which makes no sense to me. But regardless, we're starting to get back to normal. In the city of Milwaukee, I think starting today, they've started to loosen up some of the restrictions. And now you can, if you've got a plan in place, restaurants can have 50% capacity. All those things are, are positive steps. Well, the county executive in Washington County um, issued a statement yesterday announcing that Washington County will reopen to full capacity and return to live as we have long known it. He said he has directed, his name is Josh Showman, he said he has directed the Washington and Ozaki County Public Health Department to assist in reopening of churches, businesses, 
civic organizations, schools, and more. It says, it is with measured optimism and a hopeful spirit that today I announce and acknowledge the people of Washington County have begun a new phase of this COVID journey. The new phase is best characterized as a movement towards a full return to life as we have long known it, free from government restrictions and recommendations, and renewed in our commitment to fully embracing personal responsibility and individual liberty with love for our neighbor, he says in part. Now, the statement doesn't say specifically, you know, what what he's going to do and, you know, how they're going to do it. But I think if you kind of read between the lines, it's very, very clear that the the intention is going to be, hey, we're, we're going to get back to normal, if not right away, as near as as we possibly can. Now, there are statewide man, mask mandates that are in place. Whether or not in Washington County they intend to enforce those mask mandates, you know, who knows? But clearly, the county executive signaling enough is enough. We are ready to get back to normal, and as soon as we possibly can, we are fast tracking this. Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this irresponsible? Is it irresponsible at this point in time to say, look, you know, we're we're now at a point where we're going to move as quickly as we can to, again, hold people accountable, let people make their own decisions, but we're going to get back to normal. Is it being irresponsible for him to do this, or is this reflective of where the people, at least in Washington County, are on this issue. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My take on this, I, I think rather than public officials saying, okay, we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do this, I think it is refreshing to have a public official saying, look, you know, I believe we've turned the corner on this and we're going to do everything we can to get this community open as quickly as possible. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, and hopefully that will mean pushing for additional vaccinations, encouraging people to get vaccinated. But yeah, I I think it's good that our elected officials are now saying seeing some sense of urgency in trying to get businesses reopened and getting people back to live at lives as normal as close to normal as they can 855-616-1620 we discuss for wtmj contest rules visit wtmj.com slash contest jeff wagner on wtmj Okay, we have some breaking news. Let me pull it up here. Um, If you are a college basketball fan, Marquette University announcing that they have fired head basketball coach Steve Wojciechowski. He has been relieved of his duties um, as men's basketball coach. He's the head coach. Um, Wojciechowski, and if you're a regular listener's program, you know I'm a huge fan of Marquette basketball. Um, Seven years in the program, he... There's no question the program underperformed. Um, in those seven years, two trips to the NCAA tournament, two out of seven, and they were blown out in the first round both times, losing record in the Big East. Um, Steve Wojciechowski, 
I, I didn't, I'd met him once or twice. I, I know people who know him. Great guy, great family, great pedigree. I mean, he came, he came from Duke. You know, he was one of the really hot basketball prospects. He studied under, uh, you know, Coach K. And it was really, this was going to be the guy that really kind of, you know, took Marquette basketball to a new step. And for whatever reason, it, it didn't work. He, he, he recruited, brought in great recruits, had problems keeping some of the talented players. And I, I think also, look, I, I'm not a college basketball analyst and I don't try to play one on the radio, but just from a fan's perspective, Marquette, would, they'd always, it seemed to me that a lot of times they'd start off the seasons really well and then teams would figure out how to play them and then they, they weren't able to adapt. I think he was a better recruiter than he was a game coach. And um, ultimately, they two years ago, they extended his contract through 2023, I believe. But finally, I think the, the basketball program was heading in the wrong direction. He's got a number of, of very talented young players that were on the roster this year. It didn't translate into wins, but he's got a number of talented players that are there. I don't know how it's going to work out. Don't know who the replacement is going to be. Don't know if they're going to be able to uh, keep some of these players. Because like I say, they've got at least three players on the team that I think if they develop, have the potential to be, you know, in the NBA. So potentially the future is bright, but, um, for whatever reasons, they just weren't able to deliver on the court. So Steve Wojciechowski, who by all intents and ma- stretch of imagination, a-, a good guy, committed to you know academics and having his kids graduate and things like that, but just not able to deliver on the basketball court, Wojciechowski has been fired. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you are just tuning in, the Washington County Executive announced yesterday that he, he was committed to opening up Washington County. And getting back to normal. Now, it didn't say exactly what that meant, but it's very clear that he thinks, look, it's time to move on. One of the details, just so we keep this in perspective, Washington County's seven-day average number of coronavirus cases, the seven-day average is eight. That's eight which is the lowest number the number has been since July of last year. So there's not a lot of coronavirus cases in Washington County. So I guess the question the county executive is faced with is, okay, given the fact that there's there's very few reported cases here, given the fact that the people who are most vulnerable have, have had access to vaccines, Right. Does it really make any sense? Is there a need to continue to shut down the county? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Tom in Hartford. Tom, good afternoon. Tom. Tom, Tom, Tom. Okay, lost time. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I definitely applaud the county executive for his common sense approach to reopening the county. While the numbers in his area uh, don't match the numbers here in Milwaukee, I think the common sense approach is spot on, and he needs to be looked at looked at by more officials throughout the state. Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, that. I guess it's one thing to shut everything down when you have the numbers that are skyrocketing and you have widespread stuff. Eight people with COVID, you know, on average, eight people with COVID statistically is very, very small. And I don't even know that that's not eight people that are hospitalized. Again, what were we trying to do? 
when we imposed all these different rules. We were trying to flatten the curve. We were trying to keep the hospital system from being overwhelmed. And it's very clear to me that we have, by and large, we have accomplished that. Now, does that mean it's not possible that there couldn't be a resurgence or something like that? Yes, it it is, of course, possible. But what are ultimately the goals? And one of the things that's been frustrating to me is I think a lot of times officials have been moving the goalposts. It started out, let's flatten the curve so the hospital system is not overwhelmed. So that's why we need to have all these different lockdowns. Now you have a situation where the hospital system isn't overwhelmed. There's only, on average, eight cases. And again, my guess is that's not even... Certainly not all of those eight cases are among people who are particularly vulnerable necessarily. It might be a couple, but it's eight cases. What is the justification moving forward if those numbers continue to hover at that level? What is the justification for saying, okay, we're going to have all these different Restrictions, And I think he's recognizing, okay, Jeff, I think it is irresponsible at this time. We are so close. This is not the time for setbacks. The end of our current situation is in sight. I say give it one more month of restrictions. All right. So, again, my question would be, what's the measure? If, If a month from now you've continued the shutdowns, you've continued the rules, and the number is still eight cases on a daily basis, I mean, is that enough? Eight cases in a, in a county the size of Washington County, is that enough cases to justify all the different you know, shutdowns and the different rules? What, what if it's five? Where, at what point in time do you follow the science? Jeff, I don't think this is irresponsible at all. I think it is time to move forward. Good for Washington County. Jeff, I'm a 62-year-old Washington County resident. I guess I will be taking my business to Waukesha County until I am able to get vaccinated. Well, that's that, that, that's that's fine. Um, I guess starting Monday, you know, 62-year-old uh, residents of Washington County will be able to um, get vaccinated. Jeff, Washington County has been open. I played golf last Saturday, hit a pub afterwards. Not a single mask to be seen, um, both in Washington County. Um, well, okay, the, that would raise the other question. If, in fact, Washington County has been the wild, wild west, if, in fact, Washington County which includes like West Bend, hasn't been aggressively enforcing, say, mask requirements and things like that. Well, if that's the case, it certainly hasn't been borne out in an explosion of COVID-19 if the average number of cases is down to eight. I mean, what it tells me is that, again, people are getting vaccinated. Those who are most vulnerable are getting protected by this, so they're they're not getting it. I think people are still smart because regardless of whether or not there's a rule in place, I don't know that people are going to be like pounding and sitting there next to each other. I think people are going to still wear masks voluntarily. Um, Jeff, uh, lucky I had some extra N95 masks from home improvement projects that I was able to use. Um, let's see. Jeff, um, Washington County has been open no question about it. Jeff, I think it is irresponsible to do this. Jeff, my county is close to Washington County. We don't enforce the mask rule either. Um, Jeff, what an idiot. What's one more month going to do? And then another month and then another month. That's saying the person that was suggesting, why don't we wait another month? I mean, don't you have to look objectively at the numbers? And I guess you get to a point, and I'm not saying 
I, I don't I don't know what the daily numbers are in Milwaukee or in Racine, but if you're the county executive and you're saying in my entire county we're we're now stabilized at at six or eight or ten active COVID cases, and the majority of those haven't resulted in hospitalizations. At that point in time, don't the numbers, don't the sheer numbers, just say, all right, now it's time to it's take it's time to take the foot off the gas. It's time to open stuff up, recognizing that all right, if there's this huge explosion of cases, you know, maybe we re- need to reinstitute it. But once you get down to eight. How much lower are you possibly going to be? Again, I don't know how he's going to do this. He's just set this as a goal. And I think, quite candidly, the vast majority of people in Washington County and Ozaki County and in Waukesha County and probably even in Milwaukee County would support that as a goal once statistically the number of COVID cases drops to a level that is as low as it is in Washington County. This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank, is Outdoor Living Unlimited. They're located in Waukesha at 665 Larry Court, or you can find them online at OutdoorLivingUnlimited.com. That's Outdoor Living Unlimited, taking your outdoors to a higher level. Now, I haven't talked a lot about the state superintendent of schools race because I'm not sure there's really that much difference between the candidates, but it really is kind of heating up. Um, one of the candidates is has drawn the ire and wrath of the teachers' union be, her name is Deborah Kerr because she's a she's an advocate for school choice, and of course the, the teachers union it, the, the last thing they want is that the parents should be able to have a choice between whether they send their kid to a public school that may be failing or whether they send the kid to a you know a, a private school. So the teachers union doesn't like school choice. Deborah Kerr is a school choice advocate. So the the teachers union and some of the other allies have been putting money into running some really nasty ads about her that that are out there so this is heating up the flip side is it's kind of interesting because the report in the journal sentinel today is the other candidate jill underly who is the one backed by the again the teachers union it turns out that when she was working you know in the office of the state superintendent of schools her kids she put them in a private school. <laughs> she, she wasn't sending her kids to a public school, but now she doesn't want you to be able to send your kids to a non-public school. So the, the race is, is really hitting up. The, is heating up. The hypocrisy of this whole thing is incredible. We'll probably talk a little bit more before the election, which is, what, a week from Tuesday or two weeks from Tuesday. But the bottom line is, if you see these ads, you wonder what's going on and where's the money coming from. Well, it, it's because the teachers' union is going after... Um, former Brown Deer School Superintendent Deborah Kerr. Back with more in just a minute. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. A couple people are asking me, and I, I don't know off the top of my head the answer. And, and this is, if, if you're a college basketball fan, one of the, and particularly a Marquette fan, as I was saying earlier, Marquette has... A, a, a nucleus. I, I think they've got three or four kids, three in particular, to come to mind. That if they continue to develop, two were freshmen this year, one was a sophomore. If they continue to develop, I, I think all of them have a chance to play in the NBA, which would tend to mean that may, maybe good things are ahead for the Marquette basketball program. Um, in many situations, what happens though is that the kids they come to the school, they like the school, but they 
Um, they, they come for the coach. They're recruited by the coach. They want to play in that program. So inevitably, when a coach leaves, there's always a degree of uncertainty that's there. One of the things that the NCAA has had in a place for years has been a, a rule regarding transfers. You can transfer. So you're playing for Marquette, and you decide, hey, I, I want to go to Wisconsin, and I want to play basketball. The rule has always been that you can do that, but the hook has been if you leave, you have to sit out a year. And and that's that's a significant disincentive to a lot of kids because they don't want to give up and they don't lose a year of eligibility, but they don't want to sit around and not play for a year. Now, because of COVID, the NCAA changed that rule, at least for this year, I know, to allow people to transfer without having to sit out. Um, and the, the reason they did that was because um, some schools, for example, might have you know, cut back their programs because of COVID or whatever. And the thinking was it's not fair to penalize kids. And if they want to play, let, let them transfer. I, I don't know if that rule is in effect for next year or not. I don't know off the top of my head. But it would be one of those situations. And, again, Marquette's got some very, very desirable players. And if they have more of an allegiance to the coach – than they do to the university, you know, it, it could be a free-for-all. And, and if, especially if the rules allowed the kids to transfer, say, now, transfer in the spring, and, and then be able to play for another team in the in the fall. Um, you know, just, so I, I don't know that that's the case, but um, th- that's certainly the issue. Obviously, it's in Marquette's interest to get a new coach in as soon as possible and to have that new coach you know, start developing a rapport with the, the players, telling them, hey, we, we want you here and this is the new program because you don't want to have a widespread number of kids that, that are bailing, especially when, when you have, I think, a pretty good core nucleus. It is sort of disappointing. And I like I say, I, I have season tickets or I get season tickets to the Marquette games. And I was very excited when Steve Wojciechowski came to the program. I, I think he's a, a really good guy. I think he's a good recruiter, but he had problems keeping keeping some of those recruits and as a coach he just he wasn't able to figure out the big east and i'm kind of surprised that that's the case but um marquette deciding to move on all right are you happy with your health insurance and i I ask this because one of the things that is on the agenda for the democrats in the house of representatives and many democrats in the senate is to bring back the discussion of Medicare for all. And now that you have a situation where the Democrats um, essentially control the Senate by 50 votes and then Kamala Harris, that's one of the things that's going on with this talk about the filibuster, because if the Democrats do away with the filibuster, that would open the door for massive changes in our health care system. Um, the idea being, hey, it's time to go to, again, a single-payer system, Medicare for all. Now, the way it works in this country right now is about 50% of us get our health insurance through our employer. The employer pays, in many cases, the lion's share of that, but, you know, we contribute to it. Then you've got about another 18% on Medicare, another 17% on Medicaid, another 8% who are uninsured, and then you've got the Affordable Care Act. But, But the vast majority of us get our insurance through our employers. That's the way it works. Now, nobody likes paying for insurance. 
and, and nobody likes the copays and the deductibles or things like that. But my premise has always been that for most people, you're satisfied with your, your insurance. You know, you, you could could it be better? Yeah. Would you pay less? Yeah. Would you like to not have a copay, et cetera? But I think most people in general are satisfied with the system and their health insurance, which isn't to say that there aren't problems that are there. Obviously, you know, pre-existing conditions need to be covered. The idea that you, know, you can work for a company for 30 years and then, you know, lose your job and subsequently find out that you have lung cancer and then be faced with a situation where you're, it, it might not be covered and you're looking at a million dollars in expenses. Obviously, that type of thing is, is unacceptable. But, but for most of us, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I like the insurance I have. I, I think it's, it's, it's good insurance. I, I pay for it. My employer pays for it. And I would rather keep that than go to the vagaries of a government-supplied health insurance for, for everybody. And the government-provided health care, where the government decides, you know, what you're going to be able to get and how long you're going to have to wait if you need a hip replacement or something like that. I, I appreciate that the present system has weaknesses, but in general, I'm I'm happy, and I've been happy over my entire life. I've been happy with the health insurance that I've gotten from my various employers, and I don't want to see the system blown up. Can the system be changed? Can it be more responsive? Can you figure out a way to try to keep health care costs in line? Yeah, those are all valid things. But do you want to see the health care system blown up? Are you happy with your health insurance, and are you willing to give it up, your your health insurance through your employer, are you willing to give it up for what the government may offer? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I bring this issue up now because, trust me, if this doesn't happen in the next year, this is going to be a key issue in the 2022 elections. So, do we need to blow up the health care system? My answer would be no. 855-616-1620, we discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, here, here's the reality. The, the Joe Biden has been kind of quiet on the Medicare for all front, but the House Democrats, who are by and large are a lot farther to the left than Biden is, they're, they're pushing for Medicare for all. A lot of people in the Senate are. That's what's going on with this push to try to end the filibuster, because if that happens, 50 votes in the Senate plus Kamala Harris, that gets us to Medicare for all. 50% of the people in this country ballpark get their insurance through their private employers. It is my belief that the majority of us you know, are, are happy with our insurance and don't want to give that up for the idea of a government-sponsored program. The government can't figure out how to get people vaccinated. Do you want the government figuring out, okay, how, how your cancer care is going to be? Or do you want the government deciding, okay, this is the way this works, and, you know, if you have to wait six months or eight months for a hip replacement? 855-616-1620. Dell in West Dallas. Dell, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Uh, I mean, I have mixed feelings about this. One, I want to know how it's all going to get paid for. Um, I, I think that's the biggest thing. But if you could tell me that the money I'm paying now for my insurance through, you know, the portion I'm paying now through my employer, if that same amount of money or a similar amount of money I'm going to give to the government and knowing that I can walk into any hospital and both and most basic costs are going to be covered, I, I'm actually for that. 
But to say that there's not going to be private health insurance, there still will be. Because you were talking about how, well, what is the government exactly all going to cover? Well, there's still stuff that it's not going to cover. And even in Canada, the U.K., they still do have private insurance for that simple fact of the stuff that the government won't cover. Well, I think, I mean, the way I, thanks for the way, the way I understand that the Medicare for all proposals that are out there, um, it's, it's that like the, the Elizabeth Warren and the Bernie Sanders, no, there, there's not private health insurance. Now, what's going to happen is there will be, at least not as we, we understand it, what's going to happen, I guess, is that the people who are wealthiest, who don't want to get, you want a hip replacement, and you don't want to get stuck in the the government queue where they say, "Okay, well, you're you're gonna you need a knee replacement, but because that's not one of our priorities here, and there's not that many people doing it, you're gonna have to get in line, and it's gonna be nine months." There will be medical providers, there will be doctors that opt out of the public system, and they just offer their services for for a fee. And, and I mean, I, I don't know if there's even insurance for that, but the wealthiest will always be able to to do that. The wealthiest will be able to say, look, I, I just, I've got enough money. I don't want to wait nine months to get my hip replaced so I, I can afford to pay $40,000 or whatever. Here, here, do it. I, I don't want to wait all this time. So there will always be this private market. But as far as like private health insurance, at least the way I understand these Medicare for all programs, no, that's that's not what they they envision. They envision, look, it's you're going to pay in and it's going to be the, the government that's going to be there. Um, Jeff, I don't think the government could figure out how to get people vaccinated. Under, um, I, I just don't think if they, they can't do this, I don't think that that's going to work. Jeff, what's going to happen is you will be waiting six months to a year to get a doctor's appointment. Well, I think that's there is a likelihood of that. I think that under the Medicare for all proposal, what you'll see is you'll see emergency services that will be available. I think that's going to be the case. And then you're going to see the basic services that are going to be available. And I don't think that there's necessarily going to be a shortage of that. But as far as the so-called quote unquote elective procedures, there's no question. I mean, get get ready to wait. And by the way, for everybody who talks about costs, I understand that we don't think about this. In, in, I, I understand we don't think about this anymore because we just anticipate that there's this giant money tree that grows in Washington, D.C., and all you have to do is you shake it and the money comes down. And so for people who think, well, okay, I, I, this is this is going to be great, well, you, you are going to pay for this. There's no question about it. You'll, you'll pay for this in the form of higher taxes. You're going to – because the, the money does have to come from somewhere. Your companies – will pay for it. The money that they are now contributing towards your private health insurance plans, well, okay, they're going to have to contribute that to, to higher taxes. But what's different is the plans, the, the companies are going to lose the ability to, again, you know, find to negotiate different deals with their various providers, to have that in-network coverage and things like that. I'm not necessarily convinced that this is going to be cheaper, but I do know that there's going to be fewer choices. And, and let's, I mean, let's address what the big lie of the Affordable Care Act was. Remember President Obama saying, and again, regardless of how you feel about the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, remember the thing, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Well, that's not how it worked out. You know, if you like your private health insurance, you can keep your private health insurance. No, that's not how it worked out at all. And now we have a situation where there's a lot fewer choices that are out there. 
I think you can make a very, very strong argument that rather than going to the Affordable Care Act, we would have been better off taking some of the money that we spent and subsidizing the people who need the Affordable Care Act and allowing them to stay in the former system where they had different choices that were available to them and working it out that way. But the idea of Medicare for all, I just don't think so. Jeff, I think the administration is trying to get the mess cleared up that was left by Trump. Well, no, the administration is is trying to move us. At, and see, Biden's Biden's not leading this train. I mean, Biden is kind of going along with this. You've got some very very far left progressives in Congress, in the House of Representatives, in the Senate. They're the ones that are pushing for this. They want to see us go to universal single payer. They want us to be like Great Britain. They want us to be like Canada. I'm just saying I don't think that the majority of people will will some people love it absolutely. But I don't think the majority of people who have been getting their private health insurance for years and years through their employer are going to want to make that change. And by the way, when you talk to some of like the key constituencies for Democrats, like the the unionized employees who by and large have negotiated benefits that are better than a lot of people who, you know, don't have the benefits of the union negotiated benefits, that they're going to find that they've got a lot less coverage for if they end up going to universal care. So, I mean, one of the biggest groups that objects to these changes are some of the unions that, like I say, have negotiated great benefit plans, the government employees. My guess is government employees would probably lose some of the advantages that they have now. In any event, I think this is a bridge too far. But don't lose sight of the fact that when you hear all this discussion about the filibuster and things like that, if the filibuster goes away, that is an open door to allow, uh, again, universal health care. And I just don't think in 2021 this country's ready for that. I don't think the country's going to like that if it happens. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. A year ago, the pandemic was taking hold, millions were laid off, the stock market plunged, and investor confidence, well, was low. As we recover, what will you do differently with your plan and your investments? Join Dave Spano from Annex Wealth Management on Wednesday, March 31st at 6 p.m. for a special webinar, Investing in a Post-COVID World, with our very own Steve Scafidi. This free webinar is open to all fans who are interested in what's next in the markets and in investing. To find out more, please visit the features page at WTMJ.com and sign up today. You know, we were just talking about that this Medicare for all push that's out there. And I understand that some people think that this is going to be the greatest thing since canned beer. And I understand that there's some people who are on Medicare who think, well, I, I'm, I'm on Medicare. I, I love I love what I get for Medicare. Wouldn't it be great if, if everybody had it? Well, the, the problem right now is that Medicare um, typically does not pay doctors what they what they think they are worth. And so what happens is you have doctors who depend on the private insurance to help subsidize with the services that they provide and are reimbursed for, for for Medicare. Well, the issue is going to be if you have Medicare for all and you have the government setting these rates, there's going to be a lot of doctors who are going to decide they're not going to participate in the program. And so as a result of that, they'll um, 
either cut back their practices or, like one of the texters was suggesting, or they'll opt out of the system. They'll simply say, okay, well, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to accept Medicare. I'm not going to accept this insurance and I will concentrate my practice on people who can be the private payers. Well, once that happens, you, you inevitably have more and more delays, not as many doctors in the system, not as many doctors performing the different procedures because they can't make money doing it or they can't make enough money doing it. Now, look, I think there's all sorts of things that have to happen that you can improve healthcare, including transparency. Let's figure out what costs are. Somebody sent me a text saying, I was in this hospital. They charged me 25 bucks for an aspirin. Those are fair things. I mean, what's going on with these these costs? There's all sorts of things you can do to get costs under control, which benefit all of us, but it doesn't mean you blow up the system. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. I am so glad to have you with us. All right. We have been driving less due to COVID, but, but things are starting to get back to, to normal or whatever the new normal is going to be. And as I was talking about yesterday, I, I think one of the things that is going to happen is I think more and more people are going to be working from home. So arguably for folks who, who used to commute, I, I think at least in the near term and maybe permanently, th- there's not going to be as enough, as many commuters that are out on the road. Does that mean though, that we don't need to expand roads to deal with anticipated traffic? And, and my answer would be no. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's the deal. There is this huge battle going on as to whether we should widen the freeways. I-94, right now, we, we've we've improved the north-south connection, you know, all the way down to the state line. We have done all this work in the zoo interchange. The one area of the freeway system around Milwaukee that hasn't been adjusted is that stretch from really the Marquette interchange, like by Marquette, 16th Street, out, out to 70th Street. You know, that that has not been adjusted. And if you want to look for where bottlenecks occur, well, it, it's it's on that stretch of, of road. You know, you can almost guarantee that on any given day, you know, you're going to have traffic tie-ups and traffic slowdowns. And if there's ever a collision, an accident or something, you know, a lot of times what should be a 20-minute commute becomes a, a 40 or 45-minute commute. So one of the things that's been hanging fire for years has been expanding um, I-94 in that area I'm talking about, expanding it from six lanes to eight lanes and making it easier for the flow of traffic. Like I say, that's the last part of the freeway system around here that hasn't been scheduled for improvement. The governor, Governor Evers, wants to do it. Governor Walker wanted to do it, but he took the proposal off the table because he was being threatened with lawsuits from the environmental folks. Um, the Milwaukee Common Council and, and the mayor were not on board with this. And Walker just figured, look, I, I just I don't want to fight this particular battle. I want to get the zoo interchange finished. I, I want to do all this other stuff. And I'll leave the I-94 expansion for another day. Tony Evers wants to do this. Um, you have the mayor that doesn't want to see it happen. You have the common council that doesn't want to see it happen. You have a lot of the environmentalists, the anti-car movement. 
They don't want to see this happen. They argue there's not going to be need. There's not going to be a need to widen it. You can resurface it. You can rebuild it, but you do not need to widen it. There's some of the uh, community activists who say, well, this, you know, this is going to affect predominantly minority neighborhoods by you know, expanding the size of the freeway. But many of those people don't drive, so you know, we shouldn't be putting, we shouldn't be taking uh, a billion dollars and expanding the freeway. What we should be doing is figuring alternative methods. You know, improve the city streets, put the money into buses. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, here's the bottom line. I think the reality is that people are going to be in their cars and they're going to continue to be in their cars. And if you want if you want a city to to grow and to thrive and survive, you can't count on making people in the metropolitan area prisoners of transportation. And and, and that I mean if you have people who, who live in Waukesha and who work in downtown Milwaukee and it becomes too difficult for them to get to downtown Milwaukee, what's going to happen? The businesses are going to relocate to Waukesha or to Grafton or to Cedarburg or to, you know, wherever. If, if it becomes too difficult to get around, the businesses are going to go to where the, the people are. The one part, the one element of the freeway construction that still really is that that choke point continues to be that that area. And I think to suggest that, well, all right, maybe more people aren't going to be driving in the future. So we really don't need to expand the lanes. I, I just I think that's wishful thinking. I think if you're going to do this, we've redone the freeway all throughout the rest of the area. Why don't we just finish the job and get a freeway system that is going to be sustainable for the next 30 or 40 years? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it time to widen the freeway, expand the freeway once and for all so we don't have to have this argument? And we know for the next, like I say, 20 or 30 years, we're going to have the capacity to deal with the people that want to drive around. 855-616-1620. My answer is heck yes. We discuss. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I love that commercial for the sit mean sit. I mean, my, my wife hears that, and, and she really does wish that there was a program to train husbands. Her, her big thing is um, she'll, she'll make dinner. And I'll be in the living room or wherever, and she'll say, okay, dinner's on. And then she says it's me, but she says that, you, you know, when she says dinner is ready, I am supposed to get out of that chair, stop whatever I'm doing, and, and come in right away. And I, I think I do, but the fact that there's always inevitably there's a, a delay. Okay, this is it. Well, I, I've got I to gotta finish this little thing I'm doing here, or let me sign off on the email or, or whatever. And the fact that it takes a little bit of time and there's a delay there, she is just absolutely convinced that you know husbands, or at least in this case her husband, needs training that when she says dinner is ready, show up, that means you're supposed to get up and come and eat dinner. And I, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Interesting battle shaping up. Tony Evers. 
Tony Evers wants to continue with these plans that were put on the shelf to expand the freeway, go from six lanes to eight between 16th Street and 70th Street, which is the one area that's still the the bottleneck that, that is out there. He thinks it's necessary. Matter of fact, the Department of Transportation says it is necessary to meet transportation needs for, you know, the next couple decades because all the different population studies they they have show the metropolitan area growing. And and my point has been, I understand this is where I clashed with some former mayors and all who thought the idea was, hey, let's let's make it as difficult as possible for people from the suburbs to get into Milwaukee, and let's make it as difficult as possible for people from Milwaukee to get into the suburbs because what that will do if we do it well, that what it'll do is it'll make people more inclined to live in the city. I couldn't disagree more. I think we live in a metropolitan area. People are are mobile, and what happens is if it becomes too difficult, to um, I mean, if if it's just too hard to drive, for example, let's say you want to go to a restaurant downtown. If it's too, and you live in, in Waukesha or you live wherever, it and it's you, you're looking at gee, the, the freeways are congested. It's going to take me, you know, forty five minutes to get downtown to go to dinner. Well, you're not going to go downtown to go to dinner. Now, sure, maybe the idea would be that well, for the people who already live downtown, right, that's their option. But I mean, do we really want that? Don't we care about the metropolitan area and making it easy to get around? Now, I do concede that the one thing that's different is is what is. COVID done. And nobody knows that for sure. I, I think that a lot of downtown areas are going to be hurting for this foreseeable future because just like Ford announced, what, two days ago, Ford's taking 30,000 of their employees and saying, you can work at home full time. I, I think there's going to be a lot of companies that are going to be saying that. So if, if for example, Northwestern Mutual were to do that, Northwestern Mutual has essentially been wor- work at home for the last year. If Northwestern Mutual were to say to 50% of its workforce, theoretically, you, you no longer have to come into the office. Well, if a lot of companies do that, maybe there's not going to be as many people that are going to be driving downtown. So maybe there's not as much work use for it. But I don't know that that's something that you can bet on. All right, let's start with um, Aaron in Waukesha. Aaron, you're first. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi, Aaron. So a, a question that, that I have about the expansion is very familiar with the area. Uh-huh. There's been a lot of traffic damage to the National Cemetery that's there. Right. Either the plow's knocking over the fence or reckless drivers ending up on veterans' grave. So I understand that we need to continue to move forward and develop, but at what cost? When I hear stuff like, well, it's too hard to drive in, those veterans served a lot more than us to be inconvenienced for 10 minutes a day on our commute to work. Well, but if, I mean, I guess, I mean, which, thanks for calling. I mean, what you're, you're talking about the, the need that, that, depending on what proposal they look at, there a need to maybe relocate some, some graves. Now, there's some ideas around that allow you to work around that in that particular area. So it's, it's not like that whole stretch between 60th and 16th and 70th Street involve, you know, relocating, you know, graves. It's not, it, it's not that whole area that's there. And if if that's a huge criteria, there's things that you could do to kind of work around it in the one particular area where there's the grave sites. But I think at some point in time, you have to have this, this big picture here. You say, well, people inconvenienced. Well, all right, we, we move things all the time. I mean, if the idea is going to be that we're, we're not going to be able to expand 
and there's a need to expand. Now, I understand that could be what the argument is, but it, it's the, the reality is, and I don't know that it's necessarily 10 minutes a day, if you're talking about delaying people's commutes, if that's really the case, a substantial period of time, well, you, you have to come up with alternatives. You can't simply say, okay, we're not going to make these changes. As a matter of fact, I think most people have kind of signed off on the on the graves issue. The big concern right now is being that, well, this it, it it the argument that's coming out is from a a social justice perspective that again a lot of the area where there'd be some displacement involves minority areas and the argument is well people in these minority communities don't have cars so you know what we need to do is we need to concentrate on other areas i i'm not sure i accept that i mean frankly i mean one one of the first things you see people, regardless of what their race is, is that once they get a job, once they get employed, what's the first thing they do? They go out and they buy a car because they want the flexibility and the freedom the car gives them. Okay, let's talk to uh, Dennis in Milwaukee. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Dennis. Jeff, I've, I've called your show before on this issue, and um, I, I live in the Story Hill neighborhood, mm-hmm. right adjacent to the expressway, and I go for walks both in the morning and the evening. And in this uh, COVID-19 environment, with more and more people working from home, there really isn't any congestion at all. Um, so I, and again, you know, when, when the pandemic ends, who knows how many people are going to continue working from home? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows for sure. So I, I say hold off on this until we have a better idea. Now, what, what I could accept is uh, if in one direction they tunneled the expressway. In other words, maybe eastbound you have a tunnel, westbound you have it the way it is now. That would eliminate the need for uh, destroying homes and reducing Milwaukee's tax base. Obviously, it would be more expensive, but this is a project that's going to be good for 50 years, so the cost could be amortized over a 50-year period. Mm-hmm. Well, and Dennis, let me answer this. I, I guess here, I think that there's different designs that are out there, and I think obviously, it, for, from area neighborhoods, one of the concerns, and I think it's a fair concern to have, is okay, how can we do this expansion? And how can we do it in a fashion that is is the least disruptive and yet still make cost sense? And so if, if for example, that's like a, a two-tiered system at, at one point, you know, where you, you have the, the eastbound lanes go up and the westbound lanes go down or, or vice versa, however you decide to do it. I think you have to be open to that because, I mean, I'm I'm not saying, hey, let's let's tear up huge chunks of the city. But at the same time, you, you talk to – you, you talk to the businesses, you talk to the truck drivers, you talk to the people who go through that area, and they will tell you that this is where, th- this is this is the choke point. This is the area where there's these huge delays. And I think you make a fair point about what, what does the world look like post-COVID? And is it is it possible that the downtowns are going to completely die? Because that's what really the question is. I mean, if you have... A situation where the companies just simply decide that you know we're no longer going to be bringing people downtown. Um, well, that's you know that's going to kill these downtown areas. And I guess if that's the scenario, well, well maybe you you don't need to expand. Now, as to your point about walking the areas, I mean I. I don't drive it as much as I used to, but I will tell you still, you know, going through rush hour in the last week, I drove that two times and it was, 
even in the post-COVID world, hitting that area between the Marquette Interchange, going westbound out to, um, I'm going to say Miller Park, American Family Field, there was there was a ton of congestion that was there that people were, were dealing with. Now, I happen to think that cities are going to come back. I and But also, I believe that as the population increases, more and more people are going to turn to cars. What some of the folks in the city believe is that, no, people don't want to be in cars. People would rather ride in buses. People would rather find alternative things. I don't believe that's the case. Again, I, I think people once... Once people, especially, you know, once people get a job, once people get a little money, one of the first things they want to do is they want to buy a car. They want to get around. They don't want to have to depend on on the bus schedule. This is not a knock on buses or anything like that, but it's you want the flexibility and the freedom that cars give you. I think there's always going to be a transportation need that is out there. And this idea that, okay, people are going to get out of their cars or not want to be in their cars, I don't think, I think people are people. And I think that's going to be the same now, as it will be five years from now, as it will be 10 years from now, as it will be 25 years from now, as it's been since we had cars developed. Now, the cars might look different. Concede that. Cars might not be the internal combustion engines. The cars might be the electric vehicles, might be all those things. But at the end of the day, people are still going to want their cars. I mean, still going to want their cars. Um, Jeff, I just saw the DOT plans at public hearings a few years ago, and at present, there's no plans to move any graves, just squeezing in slightly narrower lanes where necessary. The big safety and flow improvements come from getting rid of the dangerous left entrances and exits near the stadium that cause accidents several times a day, in particular surrounding Brewers games, and I believe that that is long um overdue. Jeff, the fact is there is, in fact, congestion in the area. A little bit of a lighter traffic that we've seen due to COVID is not enough to say that we don't need freeway expansion. And why would we wait until it's too late, until we're over congested to make the change? Let's make the change now so that when we do see traffic come back, we're ready for it. Well, yeah, that's and again, I, I look at what we've done at the zoo interchange, and I w- look at what we've done around the Marquette interchange in the area moving south, and it's sort of like a situation where, okay, you've got, I don't know, three links of a chain, and you've replaced one link, and you've replaced another link, and then you've got that center link, and it's centered link, and it's old and rusty. Well, if you're going to replace the one on the left and you're going to replace the one on the right, why wouldn't you also replace the one that's old and rusty? Just saying. All right, lots of stuff coming up yet on the program. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. You know, Melissa, here in Wisconsin, we have more than our share of bizarre criminal cases and, and murder cases. You, when you think about it, you know, you, it, 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 you had Jeffrey Dahmer, for example. Yes. You know, you, you had you had the Dahmer case, and then you had, you know, Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. You had you had that case, and and then we're we're going to time this year. There's going to be the the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. You know, you have all the, these cases that are going to be getting all sorts of attention, and you wonder is there something in the water? Why is it that we have all these cases in Wisconsin? Mm, I was I was thinking maybe you wished you were a lawyer again. You could no, dig no, in. No, well <laughs> a- actually, but that that brings me to just a couple comments. There's 
there is developments in a very, very high-profile case that people may have, might have forgotten about, and it's one of these examples where it's probably the right legal decision, but I'm not convinced that justice is being done. And this is developments this week in the murder prosecution of a guy named Mark Jensen in connection with his, the death of his wife, Julie Jensen. You, you're, you, you, you might have not have been around here. For, for people... Who he was convicted of poisoning his wife. Here, here's the deal. It goes back to ni- 1998, and um, Mark Jensen was a successful stockbroker. They lived in Pleasant Prairie, and what happened was the um, well, the, their their marriage was was rocky. Uh, apparently, there, there's all sorts of suggestions that he was an abusive husband, and that she might have had some um, you know issues with mental illness and things like that. But it was an unhappy marriage. And apparently, at least according to some reports, she had asked him for a divorce, and he had said, you're, you're never going to see the kids again, et cetera, et cetera. And the reports were that at some point in time in the past, she had had a brief affair with somebody that he had never forgiven her for. Well, at the time, at the time all this happens, he's having a torrid affair with one of his coworkers. So in any event, Julie Jensen ends up dead in 1998, and authorities begin investigating the, this case. And what happens is one of the neighbors comes forward and says, Julie gave me this letter. And the instructions were, if anything ever happens to me, here, (laughs) give this to the police. And so she gives the letter to the police. And the the letter, I'm paraphrasing, uh, essentially says, I think my husband is trying to kill me. And if anything happens to me, you should look at him. And apparently attached to the letter is a a receipt of um, that she has showing that he was like shopping for poisons or, or things like that. Then there's two other people that she had made statements to. Uh, before her death, saying again, I, I if if anything happens, you know, look at look at Mark, look at Mark. So she dies. Authorities begin investigating this. It, it's it's not an over. It's it, it's a very it's. I'd say it's a circumstantial case. It, it's not, in my opinion, an incredibly strong case. But what they find is that you've got you've got the letter the the letter from the dead wife, and you've got statements that she made before she died, saying, "I think my husband's trying to kill me." Um, on, on top of that, there, there's not a lot of evidence at, at trial. They they had a they brought in the prosecution brought in a, a jailhouse informant, and I will tell you when you're at a stage in a prosecution where you're using jailhouse informants, that that's kind of like a hail mary because you know the people that come in and say, "Well, I was in jail with so and so, and he told me this," that's that as far as credible witnesses go that that's pretty far down the the list and then there was evidence suggesting that you know he had been searching for poisons on on his website and things like that and then there was testimony about how at her funeral he was not particularly broken up and and things like that and then shortly after shortly after her death he moves another the woman he was having an affair with she moves into the house and they end up getting married etc cetera, etc cetera. at trial the key pieces of evidence that were introduced against him were the the letter 
that she had given to, again, the neighbor to be given to the police, and some statements that she had made beforehand to other people saying, I think my husband's trying to kill me. Uh, the determination was she was poisoned by antifreeze. I think they, the, the theory was that um, the theory of the prosecution was that he was putting antifreeze in her juice and, you know, poisoning her gradually. The defense theory was that she was mentally unstable and that she committed suicide. She, she essentially killed herself by a poison, but then left these breadcrumbs out there to unfairly frame her husband. So th- those were the, the two competing theories that were out there. Case goes to trial in um, 2008, because it, it took a long while to get to trial because there were all these different issues that were out there. What do you do with, what do you do with the letter? What do you do with the things that she said, you know, before she died to people saying, I think my husband's trying to kill me. And if anything ever happens to me, look at him. And, and here's the reason it's a problem in, in this country. You have the right to confront your accusers. So you, you can't if if Gru says I came in one day and, and punched him in the eye and I get they want to try me for assault. I have the right, and Gru decides to testify and say, Jeff punched me in the eye. I have the right to confront him. So, you know, my, my attorney can come in and say, well, isn't it true that when you came to work on that Friday, you already had a black eye? And isn't it true that it was actually Mrs. Gru that punched you in the, in the eye? You, you have the right to confront your accusers. The problem in this case is that the, the accuser is dead. The, the wife is, is dead. So you had all these very, very, in my opinion, prejudicial statements, the, the letter and all these things that came into evidence that obviously helped buttress the prosecution's theory of the case. And so he was, Jensen was convicted in 2008. Uh, the jury, let's see, the prosecution's case ran five weeks. The defense took five days. The, the Mark Jensen did not testify in his own defense. Jury took four days to deliberate. Um, on on this case and, and hope and ultimately they convicted him. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. So this matter has been being litigated since you know essentially for twelve years. It's been going through the court system. And the question is, did he receive a fair trial? Fair trial meaning was it fair? Did it, was there constitutional rights to vi- to confront witnesses? Was it violated by the fact that these these letters, which were again incredibly prejudicial, my, my guess is it, it just it had to be some of the most compelling evidence that you had because all this other stuff is, is sort of circumstantial. It's yes, he was having an affair that nobody knew about. Yes, he moves the woman in afterwards. Yes, that there were these problems that people did that people didn't know about. Yes, maybe he's like searching for poisons on the internet or something. But but all that circumstantial. The overwhelming it the thing that ties it together, in my opinion, is that you, you've got the wife. The dead wife saying, hey, look, look at this. And this is what happened, etc. So that the, this case went through the court system. and It's up and down. And just earlier this week, the um, state Supreme Court affirmed a lower court decision saying that Jensen is entitled to a new trial because the use of and it, it's a lengthy opinion. As a matter of fact, I read it this morning. It, it's a lengthy opinion that essentially says the use of these these statements, this testimonial evidence, the letter, the things that she said otherwise, 
without him being able to confront her because she's dead, that that unfairly had violated his right of to be able to confront witnesses against him. So the court has ordered a new trial in this matter. Now, I don't know what the State Department of Justice and the DA's office is going to do because, as I said when we were discussing the Rittenhouse case a couple weeks ago, the, the older a case gets, that, that almost almost never benefits the prosecution. It's one of the reasons why I think it was kind of like prosecutorial malpractice for in Kenosha for them to, the prosecutors to agree and ask to have the Rittenhouse case put back a year. It, it just, it doesn't help prosecutors. Witnesses die. Witnesses disappear. Witnesses forget things. Evidence disappears. You're, you're, you're always better to move sooner rather than later, which is why it's almost always the defense that, that wants to have matters delayed. Because, again, if you've got a case and you've got a key witness, you know, who knows what could happen? That key witness might be ready to testify on Tuesday, but six months from now, eh, they, the prosecution might not know where they are or they've forgotten things or whatever. As I look at this case, I think I think the legal decision was prob- was the correct one, saying that it was probably error to admit these, these out-of-court statements. Now, that's not saying that I, I think that the guy didn't do it. I, I, I don't know. But that was probably the right legal opinion, you know, saying that to put those statements in were, were wrong. But here's the problem. How does, as a practical matter, how does the state retry the guy? The, the, the killing occurred, the murder occurred, if it was a murder instead of a suicide, occurred in 1998. The trial was 10 years later, and now you're 12 years after that. My, my guess is to try to recreate stuff that's now 20 years old and was already a circumstantial case, to try to put that all together and to try to do a, a retrial is is difficult, if not impossible. Now, I'm not saying the Justice Department won't do it. I'm not saying the DA's office won't do it. But I suspect that probably most of the people who were involved in that trial 20 years ago, the prosecutors, the investigators, most of them are have probably moved on, they're retired, what whatever. Maybe some people are dead. Who knows? But to try to to try to bring this case back is going to be extremely difficult. And and if they do, trust me, that this is this is going to be all over court TV. It's going to be just another trial of the century. And it sure seems to me that we have more than our share of those. And on the one hand, if, if they don't retry them, there's going to be this sense that um, you have somebody that got away with murdering their wife. Um, at the same time, he has been in custody. He has been in jail since his conviction, maybe even before that. I don't know if he, they got bail or not. But so he he's, has served 12 or 13 years. So even if he is acquitted or they don't retry him, there, there has been a penalty. Don't know what they're going to do, but this is just breaking news this week, and I, I find it to be just an absolutely fascinating case and just another one in the long list of high-profile, serious cases that we have had in the state of Wisconsin. Um, stay tuned, because there's going to be more developments, I think, relatively soon in the case of Mark Jensen and his alleged murder of his late wife. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I don't think there's any question that the winner of the Luckiest Woman in West Dallas Award is a woman named Brandy Bacon. All right, here's the story if you haven't followed Brandy Bacon. She was charged yesterday in Milwaukee County Circuit Court with two accounts of attempted first-degree intentional homicide. All right, 
Well, Jeff, she's been charged with two counts of intentional of attempted first degree homicide. What do you mean she's she's lucky? Well, here's the deal. March 13th, 5800 block of South Pennsylvania Avenue, um, which is in Cudahy. Here's apparently what happened. Caller calls police about eight o'clock and says that Bacon, while drunk, had fired a shot into the air. Officers arrive. They find Bacon sitting in a bush outside a residence holding a handgun. She fires at them once after they told to drop her told her to drop her gun. So the cops show up, drop your gun, she fires at the cops, telling her to leave them alone, then continued firing after the officers took cover behind a nearby van. At least one officer returned fire. Bacon moved towards the van while shooting and eventually shot at one officer from point blank range but missed then took aim at the other. Both officers shot her. At least one bullet struck Bacon in the abdomen and knocked her to the ground. In a subsequent interview with police, Bacon said she had no recollection of the shootout. She said that earlier that night she drank multiple bottles of wine and used both cocaine and marijuana. See, this is the thing I don't understand. I don't know about you, Gru, but now my days of drinking multiple bottles of wine have long since passed but if i drank multiple bottles of wine i, I wouldn't be sitting in a bush firing it at police officers i'd be passed out throwing up or i'd be throwing up or passed out i just I, but but she's apparently i drink multiple bottles of wine use both cocaine and marijuana maybe that's the the kicker and then you decide to get into a gun battle with police why why is she the luckiest woman in west Dallas? it's because it is a flat-out miracle that this woman is standing trial as opposed to in a morgue. I mean, you just think about this stuff. She's she's in a gun battle with police. She's firing shots at police officers at point-blank range. Both officers shoot her, shoot at her in, in self-defense because she's firing these, these guns at him. One bullet strikes her in the abdomen and knocks her to the ground. It, it's nothing short of a miracle that she's not dead. I mean, you just you. How many of these different stories do you hear about? For example, a law enforcement officer. Somebody takes a shot at him, and the bullet just I don't know nicks the aorta or something, and and they end up you know bleeding out, and they end up dead. Here you have a situation where the the woman's in a in a close range gun battle. She ends up getting shot, and um. Uh, and and the bullet hits her in the abdomen, and she's going to be able to stand trial. The, the second luckiest people in this case would be those Cudahy police officers, that you've got this crazed, drunken woman who's firing at them at, at close range, and she, she misses. So they, they are extremely lucky as well. But this story of um, Brandy Bacon, 33, who decides to get in a shootout while drunk and high with the uh, Cudahy Police Department, and she's she's able to live the tell of it, um, that's, I'm, I'm telling you, she might want to buy a lottery ticket because um, that's, that's pretty darn lucky. All right, when we come back, we're going to find out what Melissa and John and Greg have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.